sunflowerofpeace.com. Hello to our Commonwealth Club podcast listeners and viewers. This is a quick note from us, the employees of the club. As the world watches in horror the atrocities in Ukraine, the Commonwealth Club is highlighting important organizations providing humanitarian aid to the victims of this war. Sunflower of Peace is an organization working to support the people of Ukraine affected by the Russian military invasion. In collaboration with a global network of organizations, Sunflower of Peace procures, ships, and distributes vital medical supplies to Ukrainian health workers. It provides first aid backpacks, medicines, and essential medical supplies necessary for the very survival of the victims of this war. We encourage you to learn more about how to support this important work by visiting sunflowerofpeace.com. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, I'm Lloyd Dean, CEO of Common Spirit Health. I just want to begin by thanking all of you for joining us for this first in a series of conversations on the topic of human kindness and health justice. I am so proud and so excited to be uh, a partner uh, with the Commonwealth Club. And as most of you know, it's one of our oldest, our nation's oldest uh, civic awareness organizations. And together, uh, we are bringing this conversation to you uh, live. With me today uh, is a friend a uh, colleague, uh, Melody Hobson. Melody is the co-CEO of Aerial Investments and also the chair of the board of the Starbucks uh, Corporation. Not only has Melody been of service to many not-for-profit uh, organizations across this country, uh, but she has committed her life to the pursuit of equity and financial literacy. I am thrilled uh, to be with her and to have us join us today, and I'm deeply grateful uh, to take part uh, in this discussion uh, with Melody. Melody, it's great, great to, to see you, uh, and uh, welcome. Um, let me, yeah, thank, yeah, thank you. Um, I'm going to jump right in, uh, Melody. I know uh, because I've had the privilege of knowing you for many years. I know that you have been uh, an advocate for uh, financial literacy your entire uh, professional career. Uh, so we want to speak to you today, and I want to have this conversation uh, about uh, that passion for financial literacy and how access to such information is truly uh, a form of social justice. So let me just jump in uh, with my first question. Could you share with us all what makes you so passionate about these two topics, uh, financial literacy and social justice, and how do you see financial literacy and social justice uh, connecting? I see them connecting in every way. I'm passionate about both subjects based upon who I am, how I grew up, the experiences that I've had, and how they've shaped my view of what is possible in this country and in this world, and what impediments exist for it being a fair fight. And so let's start off with financial literacy. I grew up in a family of six. I was the youngest in my family. My mom was a single mom. She worked incredibly hard. I've told this story many, many, many times. 
And despite Herculean efforts, we often were short of the funds needed to live a, a, a really just, you know, what most people would consider a normal life. So we got evicted all the time and our phone got disconnected and our lights got turned off. And as a child, it created a great deal of trauma for me. And so at the end of the day, of course, you don't know that at the time, but certainly there's a sense of, of panic at times when you don't know where you're going to go, where you're going to live, et cetera. And I tell people it made me desperate to understand money, desperate. And I thought about it in a very specific way. It wasn't about how much I would have. It was about understanding how it worked and doing the right thing. And then I realized in my adult life, as I had the opportunity to be an intern at Ariel when I was 19 years old and discovered the entire world of investing in money management, no one taught this to me because you don't learn about this in school. You can take in, in high schools in America today, you can take a class in woodshop or auto, like literally. And I always say to people, who is cleaning their own carburetor? Who's whittling in their spare time, right? No one. But having these profound, important conversations about money and investing, those are hard to come by even in a high school today. It's getting slightly better, but we have a long, long, long way to go. And so my, my fascination, my evangelism, my passion for this subject was born out of my own experience and born out of the white space, the absence of information that exists there for young people. And saying to myself that in many ways, the language of money is like learning a foreign language, that the earlier you start, the better you are. We all know, my husband said this to me, we speak before we write, but we go and learn a language where they're trying to teach us grammar and how to speak and all of that. And the best way to learn that language is just to speak it. I think the same is true for the language of money, demystifying, decoding, creating opportunities for people to really understand because our money habits are learned. They are learned firsthand from our parents and whatever mistakes they made, we often will repeat them based upon just watching them because there's a lack of training. So I know that's a really long answer. So then when you overlay that with social justice, I believe just like Martin Luther King did at the, um, towards the end of his life, he talked a lot about civil rights was economic, were economic. And I believe very, very strongly that social justice is around economic opportunity. I am a capitalist with a capital C. I work in the financial markets. I believe in the American system. I think it is the best system out there. However, I also know and believe that system needs to work for more people and there needs to be a fair fight. And that fair fight doesn't necessarily exist in this country right now. I would say it doesn't exist in this country right now because of some, some of the barriers to entry that exist for people of color and also women when it comes to money and investing. So those two intersect perfectly. They are at the nexus of what I think could change our society and change the world is us being financially literate at the same time that we look deep into our souls about the barriers to entry that we have in this country and in the world for people who are black and brown and for women. Well, first of all, uh, thank you for sharing, not only, um, you know, answering the question, but also sharing uh, about uh, you and your childhood. And you and I have talked about our, some similarities between our childhood, because I come from a family 
of nine and you know and my parents uh, you know had very little my father worked in on and off in a factory and um, you know I can remember the struggling in our community because we had no community resources um, I can remember uh, my mother uh, at a knock at a door and it'd be some social service person bringing uh, cheese and welfare products uh, because we we, my, we just couldn't live uh, off of um, even though my father worked really hard and uh, died uh, because of a black lung disease that he got working in a, a factory. Um, you know, we didn't have a lot of money, but we had a lot of faith. Uh, and one of the things that I believe in is that uh, we are all product of our childhood and we're product uh, of our environment. So I just want to go one level deeper on um, your early uh, experience. And you beautifully articulated kind of how you entered into uh, this whole thing around the power of financial uh, literacy. Um, and your family uh, didn't have a lot neither. But where do you think, was it in school? Was it in uh, others in your community? How did you just begin to lock in on um, finance was important? Uh, not just the value of the dollar, but what what really captivated you to say, there's got to be a better way. And zeroing in on financial literacy uh, was going to be helpful in what you wanted to see happen to your family, what you wanted to see happen to you in your life. Because how as a child do you connect with that? I don't think I made that connection as a child. I think I made it when I was very young. I was in uh, at the end of my high school career and and early as, when I was 19 years old inter, inter, interning at Ariel that this light bulb went on. There were a confluence of events that were happening. So one, just as a child, as you say uh, so eloquently, you know that becomes a, an anchor to who we are. My husband always says, whatever happens to you in childhood it, it is magnified because you don't have any advanced reasoning skills as a child. You don't understand when things will end. Time is very different when you're a child. You know, a summer felt like a year when you're five years old. Yeah. But these, so, so periods of sustained um, insecurity feel like they go on forever and that leaves a mark. That's why I use the word trauma. And I'm not trying to suggest that in some kind of overstated way, but I do think these things become things that you have to work through and they are debilitating in their own way. You know how much worrying about money can affect someone's health. There is a direct correlation between the health of our society and the financial condition of people. I, it's documented. So we have that information there and I saw that play out. So I had this longing to not have this repeat then I'm 19 years old and I discover the world of money and investing and I learn about compound interest and I learn about these things that truly do change my view of how money can work for you as opposed to just working for money. I always read biographies about people. One of my favorite books of all time is this book called Buffett, The Making of an American Capitalist about Warren Buffett by Roger Lowenstein. And that book was transformative for me. John Rogers, the founder of Ariel, gave it to me very early in my career. 
And I learned all of this, this, this powerful information about money. And one of those things, I had a friend who said to me, it was super successful. He said, Melody, earned income is just that. Wealth gets created through investing, through compounding. You know, whatever you make, you're going to, you want to spend. When you think about the most successful people in the world, they got there through equity. And that I went, and suddenly like, okay, don't pay me that money. Give it to me in stock. Because if I compound it over time, one day that money will work for me. So I, it was a confluence of things that I was learning that came together, where I was watching and studying a lot of people and saying, how did they have a better life? No, it wasn't me aspiring to build, be Bill Gates. So please don't think that's what the thinking was. But I wanted to understand how they created these opportunities where over time their success would compound in ways that would be financially beneficial, not only to them, because after a while it becomes less about you but how it could compound in a way that would benefit society. And you see that with some of these leaders that I'm talking about in terms of their philanthropy, in terms of how they help move the needle for others. You do that every single day, first in your job itself and the health equity that you provide, but I know you do it in in many other ways. So that, I know, again, my answers are a little long and cumbersome, but there were so many things that came together that really put me in this mindset of thinking about money very, very differently. I did not want to live paycheck to paycheck. I did not want to wake up wondering where I was going to be. I wanted to, whatever opportunities existed for me, I remember being 25 years old and having a goal of one day having $100,000 in my 401k plan. I mean, I remember thinking that. And then I did the math. And if I had $100,000 and it compounded for 40 years, what could that be? I was thinking in that way that, oh, when I'm 70, I'll be fine. So these were the kind of things that that I was thinking about at the time. And again, I still continue to think about how can I evangelize on this message to get other people just as excited about it as I was. Last but not least, in those moments, I also realized, especially early in my career, saving is addictive. Just like many things out there, once you save a little, I would tell people, save 50 cents a day, then try to save a dollar, then try to save $5. $5 is not going to lunch. You know, I just started to think about all these ways that you could just get excited about having that spare money in account, an emergency fund. So if something happened to you, you wouldn't be devastated. That started to, again, give me more confidence, and it gave me more confidence to go out and spread the word. Clear, powerful, and uh, passionate. Um, let me pivot uh, the discussion for a moment. Uh, we know, and you've spoken about this, that substant- there's evidence uh, from you know, multiple studies that there is a link between wealth and better uh, health. Uh, And these studies have found that uh, people with greater wealth uh, live longer, uh, they have lower rates of uh, chronic uh, disease, and some of the details, the beta level of these studies um, show that people with access to money or wealth, um, obesity uh, wasn't uh, as uh, pr- uh, you know, prevalent in their lives, you know, uh, less smoking, hypertension, 
was there, but the, the degree and the level uh, and the depth of it in comparison to um, the other, uh, what I'll call study groups, um, it was just an, a demonstrable uh, difference. So the question I'd love for you to reflect on is given this overwhelming data that has been studied over and over again, uh, what do you think are the two or three things that we, that our listeners, that we as a society, that we as business people, we as community leaders can and must do to address the challenges of this delta uh, between uh, greater wealth and those without, uh, and knowing that it can also lead to better health. What aren't we doing that, as you reflect on it, that we can do and must do? One thing we did, but we have to continue to fight for and make sure it doesn't go away, that is profoundly that has been profoundly important to this conversation is providing healthcare to our society. So Obamacare, this is not about a political statement, it's just about the fact that that is transformative because when we link it to money, number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States, healthcare bills. And so there's a direct correlation there between making sure people understand that to the extent they can have affordable healthcare, which you know has been a game changer. I mean, you've witnessed this firsthand. You were in there negotiating how it was going to work. You're a part of the solution, which has been why I have so much respect and admiration for you. Um, that is significant. And so I don't want that to be dismissed. We've made, you know, giant steps. I think it's something like 20 more million people are covered in this country. That number could be wrong. So please, uh, I might have dated information. But that's a big deal. As someone who grew up without health care, whenever we were sick, we went to the emergency room. That's how I got health care. We would get a throat culture at the emergency room if I had strep. That is not the way to have your health care sold out to you. You know that better than anyone. And that is a very expensive way to try to manage your health as well in those critical care moments. So I think we have, and I'm, you know, you know so much more about this than I do, Lloyd, but I can tell you financially that does help in terms of um, both better healthcare outcomes and economic uh, uh, security at the same time, just that, that intersection right there. The other couple of things that I think are important, I've already hinted at, knowledge is power. You know, that saying is very true. You need to know. You know, I tell people that we do more research on, you know, a new uh, uh, device that we're going to buy or an app that we want. Yeah. Or, you know, we do more research on that than we do in understanding some of our financial situation. So I ask people, you know, it's like open up your wallet. How many credit cards do you have? You actually should only have one. No, I don't say that because I know there have been situations where people, you need that credit card to make the ends meet. You're, you know, lit. I've been to this movie. I can tell you that. 
But I also know the times that we had credit cards that we used to buy Easter dresses when we shouldn't have, and we're paying a minimum, you know, balance on it. I do ask the question of people, what's your interest rate? You know, if you don't know that, that's a big deal because you don't understand how long it's going to take you to pay something off. I love what credit card companies have done now where they show you how long it's going to take if you only pay the minimum and you get to look at that. That's something that I think is really, really great. That knowledge is so important, so important. Just basic knowledge about where your finances are and then, and, and you know, where you are, what your goals are. Just if you can't go out and hire someone, if you can't, you know, uh, if you don't have the, the the means to do that, just you understanding some of those basics yourself, as opposed to this pile of papers that sit there that you're afraid to look at, just assessing that would be super, super helpful. And then the last thing, just in, on the, you know, the side of the employer, you know, pay equity is going to be very important. You again, goes back to, we know that the compensation for women and people of color is much less than that of white. Uh, men who have the same jobs. And so those pay equity studies, I think, are really starting to make a difference that corporate America, many corporations have now committed to doing every year to see where that disparity is and trying to get it more in line. I think it has profoundly uh, helped women first. And I think we can do a better job with people of color. And I, I do hope that that's coming. So those are the three areas that healthcare helps us financially, that knowledge, we need to know where we stand, even if it's not in a good position so we can chip away at the situation. And then last but not least, this idea of making sure our employers are being fair and equitable too. Uh, thank you. You know, I, I say this all the time, um, you know, given the lens that I kind of look at the world and uh, am blessed to to see and experience through not just our 170,000 employees, but um, being in a position as Common Spirit Health to serve one out of every four people uh, in this uh, country. And one of the things that I've always said is that it is impossible to have a healthy and vibrant community if you don't have health. Uh, because it is the, the springboard into a healthy economy. It's a springboard into education. It's a springboard um, into all of those things uh, that often people uh, take for granted. But if, if you're sick, you can't work. If you're, if you, if you're not healthy, uh, education, uh, becomes much more uh, difficult uh, for you. Over the last two and a half years, we've all gone through a journey uh, that none of us alive today, um, you know, unless somebody was alive in, in 1918, uh, have ever experienced uh, called the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. And it has touched your life, it's touched my life, it's touched the lives of uh, our loved ones, it's disproportionately impacted communities of color, uh, disproportionately uh, impacted the poor and the most uh, vulnerable. Um, and, you know, that's a lead into, I do, and you know this about me, I don't Google a lot of people, but I do Google 
Melody Hobson. And I Google you because, I mean, not just that I love you as a person um, and consider you a deep friend, but I respect your courage. I respect your thought. Uh, and I expect, and I respect your willingness to say what others may think, but not have the courage to say. And to use this platform that you've earned um, to do everything that you can to be a change agent for society, to be a voice for the voiceless. Um, and in one of my Googles of you, um, you wrote this op-ed for the Financial uh, Times about what you referred to as the other pandemic. Uh, and in that, you reflected on the fact that there were millions of Americans that lacked the path to financial security. And there was this powerful line in there, and I'm going to, I hope I don't butcher it, but I'm going to quote uh, the thesis of it. it you said, I, and I quote, a more financially literate society will help reverse this trend of a lack of a path to financial success and security. So my question to you is, how can financial institutions, and you know the leaders of that, you spoke to the boards, um, but how can those institutions and the private sector more broadly help create that financial literacy in our society that you referenced uh, in that piece? Well, I really like that piece because I've been thinking a lot about this idea of this other pandemic, and it started off with this concept that I said, you know, people do not feel comfortable talking about money in our society. It is a taboo subject. And what I found fascinating was I was in an elevator once. There were, you know, now we're not in crowded elevators, but I was in an elevator once and two people were in the elevator and they were talking about what vaccine they got. And I thought it was so interesting that people will, you know, anyone, any stranger, cab driver in an elevator, Moderna, J&J, &J, you know, like we'll so. share this private health information, but we won't talk about money even with close friends. You know, it just is one of those subjects. And a part of that has to do with a lack of knowledge. It has to do with fear. The same is true of children. I mean, we will explain the most complex subjects to children Parents say that they're more willing to talk about sex and drugs than money to their kids. They rank money lower in terms of a comfort level, which is fascinating when you really think about it. But again, it comes out of a lack of knowledge and expertise. So this financial literacy point that I'm making, it is not anecdotal. There's tons of evidence around it. What can financial institutions do? I think they're starting to do it. I remember John Rogers and I, 20 years ago, the founder of Ariel, we would go and see the big wigs at the big yeah. firms. And we would say to them, these pipsqueaks from Chicago, that's what we were. We would say things like, you should lower your minimum investments. Yeah. You should make it so that the minimum is not five or $10,000 to invest in your mutual fund. At Ariel, 
we made our minimum $50 a month. We said, we, even if people have the money, they don't know anything about this subject and they're not going to jump in head first into something they don't know anything about when maybe in their family, they're the first one making money. So we need to spoon feed and, and be give more on-ramps to people. Well, now you can buy a piece of a share of a company. There are these FinTech companies that allow you to invest very little. There are companies that allow you to invest the change. I'm on the board of JP Morgan. We've done so much to create access for everyday individuals in terms of money and investing. I think that game has changed and it's being democratized in real time. And that access is going to be very, very powerful over time because it didn't exist before. When you were well-meaning and you wanted to save for your kid's college or what have you, and the minimum was $10,000, it wasn't an option. And so now the idea of $50 a month or change, I mean, the idea of yeah. coins that you that you know are left over after you pay a bill at a grocery store at a restaurant, this is very powerful. And again, when you go back to compounding, there's magic there. So there's a still a lot more to do. I've also, I think financial services firms have to follow the lead of, you know, a company where you're on the board, McDonald's. Yeah. McDonald's has been target marketing for what? 60 years. I don't it's even know what the number decades. is. 50, decades. Uh, decades. And so I remember McDonald's commercials that were targeted at black, targeted at uh, Hispanic community, et cetera, to say, we, we're speaking to you. We understand you. We know you. Financial services is one of the last bastions of that. And we need to do a better job. We did a study at Ariel years and years and years ago, and this has changed, where we asked all of our friends if they had, they used to have enrollment kits on paper to be in a 401k plan. We'd say, could we see it? And we, we had about 100 of them spread out over our conference table. Again, this was years and years ago. There was always this picture of a beautiful white couple walking on yeah. a beach. Yeah. Always. Yeah. I mean, they were gorgeous. Yeah. There weren't Black people. And we even, we did a lot of research and studies and surveying around Black investing. Our definition of retirement is actually different than that of our white counterparts. We asked white Americans who make $50,000 in income or more, what do you plan to do in retirement? They would say spend more time with their grandchildren, travel, um, uh, volunteer. We asked black Americans making $50,000 in income or more the same question. And they would say things like start a second career, uh, uh, start a business, consult. So we had this working mentality until we die. And they were literally thinking about the golden years. And that alone in those pictures, though, just those depictions, we didn't even see ourselves in our concept. I didn't grow up in a family with any family member who ever retired. In my family, they just worked until they died. Until very recently, the last 15 years ago, I actually have retirements in my family, but most everyone else, it was a different situation. So these are the kind of things that I think the financial industry has taken note of, notice of. And now when you do log on, as opposed to getting that paper for your 401k plan or your 403b or 457, just the visuals are now different. And I think that's more powerful, important, not just that access piece that I talked about. 
you know, I, I, I was smiling when you uh, referenced the fact that in our society, and particularly in America, and I'm going to contrast America against other countries, um, how early we learn you didn't talk about money. I have never forgotten. Uh, I can't remember if I was four or five. Uh, my grandparents, like a lot of African-Americans that moved uh, from the South, uh, they moved up North because my dad, my grandfather got a job in a factory. My dad got a job in a, um, a factory. Um, uh, but we always lived because my community was 99.9% Black folks who moved from the South because they, not only because of all the, the treatment issues that we could talk about and the discrimination, but they were wanted in the North because of the auto industry, that's how my parents ended up in Michigan, they could get uh, jobs. But the point of the story is that I remember one day, um, the family, my, my parents and, and my grandparents, uh, we were all up at uh, my grandparents' house. And my, I could, you know, because of time, my grandfather had a television and we didn't. Um, and so I said, granddaddy, you're rich. How much money do you make? Oh my God. My father grabbed me by the neck snatched me into another room. Now I'm a little kid. And he said, don't you ever, ever ask somebody how much money they make. That is none of your business. And I don't tell the story because my dad was, I mean, he was crazy, but we could spend time on that. But that was all, almost traumatic for me. And I never ask anybody about money. And I was kind of trying to ask him, how did you save up money to get a television? But, you know, you think about that, that that just goes away and you go, oh, I made a mistake. You know, my parents were correcting me. But it kept, I, I never, even as I got older, when I wanted to know, because I was bused to a school and kids had more money and I'd meet uh, some of their parents, I wanted to know, how did you get this money? What did you do? Uh, because nobody, in, you know, the only person in my community that had money was the pastor of the church, uh, the uh, funeral home guy that I knew would come to the community uh, and the and the young and the young folks that were running the numbers and doing things that I don't want to mention that they were doing. So I but that really as I got older said that almost traumatized me about money and this inquisitive nature of how do you get how do you take money and make it so that I could get a television? How could I get uh, some of the things that I saw that my grandparents uh, have? So I just love that you told that story. Uh, but here's the contrast. Um, when I 
did um, graduate from high school and first person in my community to go to college, um, there were a lot of uh, Asian students in my college class. And sometimes their families would come up on the, on the weekends. And I'm telling you, at two or three, I could tell those kids knew about money and knew about savings. And, and, and that dichotomy, I think, just underlines, um, you know, uh, what, 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 what you said. Uh, but let me pivot one, one, one more time. And let me just first of all begin by congratulating you for your appointment to the Mount Sinai Institute for uh, Equity and Research uh, Board. Um, and I know a little bit about uh, the work of that board. They really are focused on critical health uh, issues that are uh, in particular affecting at-risk communities and populations. Could you share with our listeners and this audience about your role on that board and what do you feel that you're called to do? And, you know, anybody that knows you knows that, um, you know, every day your phone's ringing, you know, Melody, will you be on this board? And you're on, you know, have been and on, on some of the most um, powerful boards uh, on the planet, including um, uh, Starbucks, but JP Morgan, and you know, I could go on and on, uh, Chase, I, I could go on and on. But why, why that board? Because you have to, just because you, you want to have some kind of life, turn down more board opportunities um, than probably anybody I know. But you're also about purpose. Why this board? Well, first of all, I have to go back to your story about the grandfather because that story fascinates me. I've heard it so many times. And um, I, I just want to put some color on that. My first thought when you asked your grandfather about how much he made, that's the equivalent of when you're Black going into someone's refrigerator. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Just right. don't yeah. ever do it. Do that, yeah invites you to do it that could get yeah. you a real lashing yeah. i don't know why the refrigerator is so protected but or growing up where you weren't allowed to use the phone without asking yeah. right i mean yeah. god forbid you make a long distance phone call that was just yeah. no way but yeah. these are things that just in our community are just so sacrosanct yeah. and it just made me chuckle to think about those like bright lines where it's a no-go yeah. And then how the, that, that, that moment about money then shapes your perspective about what you can talk about and what you can't. I want to just, just layer on a little bit more context on that because I grew up in a house because money was a problem. Yeah. I, we always talked about it yeah. um, and, you know, because it was in short supply. And my mom did something that in some ways was incredibly, mm, probably not the best, um, but also was the best at the same time. Not the best in that, I knew when we weren't going to be able to pay our rent, I knew that she would show me past due bills. Um, so for a kid that was pretty heavy, but at the same time, I knew what everything cost. I had a complete understanding of what it costs to live. And I think we rob young people of that opportunity. They don't know what a cell phone right. bill costs. They don't know what the sacrifices are that the parents have to create those opportunities for them. My mom used to have me paid the check wherever we were, if it was McDonald's or white tablecloth restaurant, but when I was little, could barely put my hand up. Then it was count the change. Then it was calculate the tip. 
So I knew a McDonald's hamburger was different than a steak in a restaurant and just had this sense of trade-offs that you would make. So I really, really think that money conversation that you didn't have um, is, is very, very common in black and brown communities, often with women as well, of all colors, versus this idea of opening up the conversation in a way that you could understand saving for a television, which would have been a profound and powerful lesson that you as a four-year-old wanted to know is just amazing. That is amazing. Or visiting those homes. I had the same experience. I went to schools where I was one of the only Black kids in my class. And I was with a lot of students who had just totally different lives. And I was fascinated. Like, oh my God, this must be so great. And I just watched and learned in that regard and took note of these things to try to then say, yeah, I could make that choice. I want that option one day. So I think that piece, back to Mount Sinai. So that group came together during COVID. Yes. And the whole idea there, it's a, I, I want to be super honest. I do a lot of things. And this one is a lighter lift. And what I mean by that is they brought together a lot of people um, who are have some stature in their communities for a very, very clear reason. It was for them to really appreciate and understand some of the healthcare issues that exist amongst underrepresented communities and to be advocates, voices, um, facilitators um, that could hopefully help open up that conversation. I think their initial thought was very clearly around vaccinations and some of the resistance that uh, clearly has existed in black and brown communities and making sure that we understood what those challenges were, because I think it would be easy to come to some conclusion that somehow there was less, less, uh, that somehow people were being discriminated against, that the shots were going to, yep. you know, this group and not this group. And then when you peeled the onion back and said, we've got to get this population that is afraid and we understand what their fear is based on, based on healthcare practices in many, many years ago that were wrong. And that really did uh, did not uh, do the right thing, and maybe that also still exists today. But the idea that we want you to see our intentions, our efforts, and then we want you to tell us how to do this better. And so it was really to advise and contribute to that conversation, as well as to understand what the challenges were. I think it was a very smart thing to do, and they brought together people. Even though Mount Sinai is New York, yes, they brought yes. together people all over the country so that there would be more of an understanding of this issue. Well, uh, thank you. And they are lucky to have you uh, uh, on that uh, uh, board. Um, you know, a lot of our folks that are on this uh, call, uh, I'm sure while we've been on here, have just been Googling Melody Hobson, Melody Hobson. Um, and they're gonna see that you're a very busy lady, but a very passionate lady, a very uh, caring uh, woman uh, and, uh, powerful and stand tall in your own right. Uh, but one of the things that they may not get a full grasp of is even as busy as you are, um, the time that you spend, uh, giving of your time to help create professional opportunities for others with a particular focus on women 
in people of color. With all of the priorities and all of the pressures of all of the things that you're involved in, and uh, including raising a beautiful daughter who I uh, feel like I've kind of been on that journey with you uh, uh, because I was a part of, you know, our uh, friendship when she came into your life. Uh, but the question that I think people would love to hear the you reflect on is, why does that matter so much to you? That you will forego other things that might be, you know, more pleasurable in different places in the world to really focus and use your voice around opportunities for women, uh, around opportunities for people of, of, of color. Why? You and I are very similar and our stories are not unique. Right. We are quintessential examples of the American dream being alive and well, right. still not fully utilizing all of its power and potential. As I said, capitalism needs to include more people in better outcomes. So I'm, I'm convinced it, we're not good enough yet. We haven't reached our potential as a country because of some of the barriers to entry. Why do I feel very strongly about these things? Why do I advocate in these ways? Why am I an evangelist on these issues? It's because um, miracles have happened for me. My life has been a miracle. I got so many breaks. I worked really, really, really hard, but a lot had to go well. A lot had to go well for you too. We have these opportunities that don't make any sense. We've exceeded our expectations for ourselves. I know that I have, and I think you as my um, close friend and brother, I think you feel the same way. And as a result of that, we owe society. We have a huge debt to be paid. And that debt is about making sure there are more Lloyds and more Melodies. That debt is also understanding. And this is something that I'm very clear about. The, the needle movers in our society are around the economics. And I know I'm in rooms because of a bank account. That's not right. And so then if I'm going to be in that room, I have to use my power for good. You know, in our society, we glorify and we vilify money. It's the, the craziest thing. If you have a lot, you're perceived to be smart. And I can tell you, I've met a lot of rich people who aren't that smart. And if you don't have money, you're perceived to be dumb and lazy. And that is just not true. I've lived on both sides of this equation. And I just want to make sure that there is a fair fight. And that you can't come to these quick stereotypes based upon your impression of someone and their bank account. And so my goal in the rooms that I'm in is to use that power to make sure that I can illustrate both in my physical presence, in my ideas, in my advocacy, in my unexpected conversation in ways that they think I would be good. I'm not good. I'm not good because I'm okay. I'm not good because a lot of our community is still suffering. When you're black and brown in the society, no matter how successful you are, you still have proximity. And that proximity is very real to people who are struggling every single day. I do not forget it. And I have to make sure that I serve them because I got more than I expected out of life. And a lot of people put a lot into me to make that possible. Well, thank you. And, you know, I'm a big believer in that 
Um, there is such a thing as uh, luck, uh, but uh, luck in and of itself um, is, uh, I think, insufficient uh, to achieve what Amelia Hobson has and continues to achieve. Uh, and I know your work ethic. I know, um, you know, a little bit about how you uh, spend their time, your time. And there's yet so much more. Uh, and I think, you know, people in this audience, if they don't realize, should take note that we are blessed that Melody Hobson has uh, passed our way in spending this time. Uh, I'm seeing people put up the hands uh, uh, in front of me. Uh, we're now at that point in the program where uh, the Commonwealth uh, staff has been scanning the chat um, uh, conversation. And during that, uh, there are questions. Uh, so I'm going to try to paraphrase uh, those uh, uh, questions. Um, we're certainly not going to get to them all, but I'll do my best to, uh, uh, to paraphrase uh, what I'm seeing. Uh, question A for Melody. Uh, this access issue seems to cut across so many areas of our society, uh, not just financial literacy, but we really appreciate and uh, respect and have learned and are motivated by your comments about uh, financially, financial literacy. Uh, but the problem seems to be so much bigger in our society uh, than just uh, financial um, uh, literacy. So when you think globally about where we are as a country and where we are as a world, um, how do we, from your perspective, bring down the walls uh, that exist in our society to better create, is the term they use, uh, a better overall access um, in our world and in our country. Wow. Well, that, I mean, we could spend hours on yeah. that question, but let yeah. me just try to chip away super quick. I do think the financial literacy piece of it is very important because to the extent that people understand on all sides of this equation, the, the underserved and underrepresented minority, the woman, as well as the majority member of our community, that if everyone participates, you have a bigger, you have a greater opportunity to growing the pie. The pie gets bigger, your piece of it gets bigger as well. It is not a zero sum game, which is what I think people often think about when they think about economic trade-offs that have to be made in our society. Someone wins and therefore I lose. It's actually just the opposite. Jesse Jackson has this line that I love so much where he says, baseball wasn't as good as it could be until Jackie Robinson could play. Yeah. Nothing is as good as it can be until everyone can play because then you get that competition that leads to the best, that push, pushes each other to be better. So the financial literacy piece of it is really, really crucial to understanding you know, I love this line, math has no opinion. If you can distill things to math, a lot of times you can see what is wrong. When you just count, you can see inequity. Sometimes I help people to see that in their own organizations, in their own structures, et cetera, by saying to them, this is actually statistically not possible. That if you say to me, there is no discrimination here, it, it is not overt, but the statistics would say you would have just more people of color in this organization, in Cedar, just if you just, it, it just in, in any kind of random process. And because you don't, something's working against it. 
So for me, the barriers do become about the math in a lot of ways around the financial literacy, understanding if I have people who are representative, I maybe have access to more customers. If I, I mean, there's so much, it it's, creates a virtual circle, a virtuous circle. And I think it, it ends up not being understood, which is why we have to teach all of this in school. Uh, thank you. Uh, the second question I'll answer really quickly because it's uh, for, uh, for me, it said, Lloyd, uh, you and Melody shared uh, a lot about your upbringing. What are, uh, what or who helped bridge the experience to get you where you are today? Uh, and uh, how did that journey happen? Um, and I'll be very candid that my journey happened out of uh, a, a series of motivations. Uh, one uh, was somewhat... Um, I became desperate uh, because I saw pain in my family. I, I didn't know now, I, I mean, what I know now, but I saw my mom go into a depression because um, she couldn't give her kids what she wanted them um, uh, to have. So one of the things was motivation to be able to help my family, my brothers and sisters I talked about, I came from a family of nine kids. I didn't want my brothers and sisters to go, and I'm the oldest living. I didn't want them to experience uh, what uh, I experienced. Um, secondly, I had access to education because I was bused to uh, a middle class, upper middle class a school. And like uh, as African-Americans, we were 1%. Uh, of that uh, school. But I knew um, that I wanted to do more than uh, I saw being done in my community to not only help my family, but to help my, my, my own community. So I doubled down on education to do good in school because I felt that it was a path out for me. And my parents did, um, while they didn't have a lot of money financially, uh, they also taught me uh, a lot of lessons. Um, a quick story, uh, the seven boys, uh, everyone in my family, my father made us, uh, all of the boys had to have some kind of job when they were 10. Uh, my father started telling me at 10, you know, you'll be leaving this house soon. Um, and I go, what? And he told that story. I mean, I tell you that story because the pressure of having nine kids in a three-bedroom home, uh, and a father working in a factory on uh, and off. So a better life for my community, a better life for my family motivated me. Education uh, was uh, the way out. And uh, faith was important to my family. Church was like, I mean, it wasn't, uh, it, it was a, a relief for me uh, from the pressures of being in my home and uh, watching my mother in particular uh, uh, suffer. Um, so, uh, you know, what I learned in, in church, and, and, and I quickly learned that I wanted to not just be in the room, I wanted to be conducting what was going on in the room. And, you know, I didn't, and I've even carried that forward. I don't want to just be in the boardroom. Uh, I want to be helping lead what happens uh, there. So that's the answer to that. Okay. Uh, another question for Melody. What 
uh, you mentioned uh, financial inst institutions. Uh, what additional steps would you advise financial institutions to take to meet the needs of the broader community around them um, relative to financial literacy, but being a better and a more engaged good corporate citizen? Do business with small businesses that are run by people of color, big businesses that are run by people of color, mid-sized businesses that are run by people of color, because to the extent that you do business with those organizations, so many companies are talking about diversifying their supply chain, especially after all that has occurred in the world with um, supply chain backlogs because of the pandemic. They're now looking at their supply chain in a very different way. They have a real opportunity to put their money where their mouth is in terms of engaging with those businesses that would do anything to supply to them. And again, you just create this, this very virtuous economic circle that those organizations that say they care about diversity, equity, inclusion are putting money right back in to businesses that foster those communities. Oftentimes they've thought about the way that they do that is through philanthropy. That's great, but that is not the way over the long term to, to me, um, truly change the economics of our society. So doing business with, with uh, minorities and women is a very clear way that corporations can help move the needle. Okay, and they're going crazy with the uh, two minutes left uh, uh, wave here. So uh, one last uh, question for you, uh, and it's kind of a personal question. Um, you've done so much with your life and you've motivated so many uh, uh, people and, um, you know, and all of your life certainly hasn't been easy. What's the one or two things that you haven't done yet that's on your life agenda that while here on earth, Melody Hobson wants to do? Well, I have to teach my eight-year-old how to ride a bike. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I just do not want to have one of those kids who's 35 and can't ride a bike. Yeah. So uh, that is on my list of to-dos. Got it. Uh, because that will be a pretty bad failure if I can't figure it out. Um, the other thing that I want to do, which is also related to her, is I just want to raise a good human being who's kind and cares about people and also understands the responsibility she has. Because if we've won the birth lottery, as Warren Buffett says, when you're born in America, she's won the birth lottery in America. Two parents, lots of resources, best education, all of those things. If I owe society, she owes it in a different way. And I want her to understand that and be a vessel for um, also creating opportunity for others. And taking that responsibility, I'm not trying to saddle with it or with that responsibility. I want her to understand that is a responsibility that she has. I think the last thing I would say is um, there's so much I still want to do at Ariel. And I want to make sure that we can change the narrative about what it means to be a Black business in this country and that we create businesses of scale that are truly formidable in our society. And we just haven't seen that yet. We, haven't, we don't have many of them. I'm not saying zero, right. but we need more. And I think we can be a vessel to that, not to enrich myself, I really mean that, but to really um, 
create opportunities for minority business, for the people who work in my firm. Um, we're successful. There's no question about it. Um, but could we be even something different as a, a symbol in our community? So I wake up thinking about that and making sure that the way that we get there is by delivering unbelievably great uh, performance to our clients so that we could secure the futures of all those kids' college educations, those house funds, and those people's uh, rainy day funds for when they want to start a business, whatever it might be, that we create the financial security that they need for them to have a better life. Well, Ms. Hobson, we have come to the end of our time together. And I just want to, on behalf of Common Spirit Health Foundation, on behalf of, on behalf of the Commonwealth Club, um, and you know from my heart, say thank you, thank you, uh, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, you have had a chance to uh, tap into the soul, the spirit, uh, the power of one of the most precious ladies walking uh, on uh, this earth. I hope you have found this educational, inspirational, um, and motivational uh, for you to join uh, this journey of uh, attacking financial literacy, providing access um, to health and healthcare in the communities, and using your voice and using your platform to not just talk, but to act. So, Melody, thank you. May God bless you. Um, you know, we are just, I continue to just be amazed uh, by you. And you know, I love you and tell George and tell the young lady that I said uh, hello. Thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. We love Thank you right back. Thanks for all that you do. Yeah. Uh, I also want to uh, just close out by thanking all of you for joining us uh, today. And of course, as I mentioned, I want to say a special thank you to the Commonwealth Club for hosting uh, this uh, dialogue. Uh, there's no question that the challenges ahead of us are immense and their solutions are undeniably uh, complex, but as demonstrated by each of your presence uh, on this with us uh, today, uh, your commitment and our commitment to human kindness um, and health justice is strong, needs to be stronger. But ladies and gentlemen, this concludes our time together. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And may God bless all of you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.